It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is the managing editor of the aforementioned Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, guys. Good to see you. And a good panel today. We have uh, Steve Wick, executive editor of the Times Review Media Group that's based in Mattatuck and covers Riverhead and the North Fork. Hey, Steve. Nice to be here this morning. Nice to have a Pulitzer Prize winner on the panel always. And uh, Carissa Katz, the managing editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, Carissa. Hey, guys. Nice to be here. Good morning. Thanks for getting up and talking to us this morning. Um, so let's talk a little bit about something that's going on in Albany right now that affects us locally, affects everybody in the state. But it has to do with the open meetings law. And Carissa, maybe um, you can talk to this a little bit. Um, there's a proposal uh, regarding the use of video conferencing. And, and part of the discussion is whether or not that's been helpful. We may have one of the things we may have sort of discovered uh, in during the pandemic is that Zoom offers some benefits when it comes to open meetings and open government. Carissa, okay. so tell, tell us about what's what's the discussion is in Albany right now. Well, the, the discussion right now, they've extended um, remote access to uh, public meetings through January. And the discussion is about whether that's something that should continue. Um, and our... Uh, Glenn Hall, who I think those of us on East End who've covered things for a while will know him well from his role um, as a disabilities advocate. Um, he's the head of the East End Disabilities Group. He reached out, I think, to both of our papers because I noticed that you guys also had a story on the cover of your paper about his uh, going up to Albany to testify, well, not going up to Albany, but virtually which is part of the irony of it is that, that they How gave him the opportunity. It was to him to even have that opportunity. Exactly. So he's he's speaking for certainly he's advocating for people with disabilities who may have a difficult time going in person to any kind of public governmental meeting, but in a way that is also advocating for so many of us who, for different reasons, might not be able to attend a meeting. If you have property own a house out on the East End, but you're working in the city and you can't come to something on a Tuesday, maybe it's really important to you to weigh in. And if you have the ability to do so virtually and participate in government in a virtual way, I think that's um, that's something that that the that Albany's considering right now. And I thought that Ken Hall made a pretty compelling argument for the reasons to continue at least some form of remote participation. I'll simply note the irony of the the conversation about Zoom being disrupted by uh, poor Zoom uh, <laughs> technology. That that's that that's sort of feels issues. ironic, and we shouldn't let it pass without noting it. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. No, I was just going to say I, I I spoke to Mr. Hall and and um, a very very compelling argument that um, that open meetings um, in in the past have just in his eyes, have not been in compliance with the American with Disabilities Act. And I think that that's a really compelling argument um, in favor of changing the open meetings law and allowing 
um, participation um, virtually through through Zoom or, or, or whatever platform um, for for people to be able to to speak out to you know to to their government leaders. I thought it was a really it was an argument I hadn't heard before, and I thought it was just really compelling. I mean, the ADA is is a strong piece of legislation, and Bill, you know, working with the website. Um, that there's a lot of requirements even for websites now to be adaptive to to be able to to for people with visual disabilities and things like that, right? I mean, this is that's a it's a powerful law that maybe the the open meetings law has sort of escaped scrutiny, um, but right. but that that is a new way to look oh, and, at it. And it's a federal law, which which is interesting. I mean, as as it applies to, I mean, that would supersede. Um, you know, state laws, I guess. Um, and, you know, and it says that, you know, that they, you know, organizations and, and governments have to be in compliance with that. So we'll see. We'll see if that helps the argument at all. Steve, th- this has been an ongoing debate, um, I know, among our readers. And we've gotten some letters on the subject about whether the virtual meetings that we've had to endure throughout the pandemic, um, it's, it's clearly not the best way to do this, but it does add a layer of open government and, and allows more participation. I mean, we certainly have seen uh, meetings, municipal meetings with a much larger virtual audience than they've ever had um, with people attending in person. There is a benefit to this, right? Yeah, there, there's absolutely no question. It, it, it became a little more controversial in Riverhead that where they were arguing over how to continue it or not to continue it in Southfold. It wasn't really a discussion, but you know, anywhere there's a second home um, community in which people, let's say in the city really do care about where, where their house is on the beach or whatever, having zoom access is incredibly democratic and allows them to listen in to, to offer opinions. It's, it's, I mean, it wasn't just that it, we needed it during the pandemic when people didn't want to go out. It was, it's really has a larger meaning, perhaps not in Smithtown, but definitely on the East End where you have so many people who have second properties. It's really, really, uh, Zoom worked. There's no question about it. And, and Carissa, Fred Thiel, our, our state assemblyman, has introduced some legislation that has to do with actual participants in the meeting, like board members, and mm-hmm. whether or not they can use Zoom to participate in those meetings. That's sort of a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, there's some benefits to that, but there's also some downside to it. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was um, rereading the articles about this uh, subject this morning. And it's true, there's the positive of allowing people to participate who would have difficulty getting there, but do you want your elected officials to be participating via Zoom or teleconference? And how does that, you know, how do you, how do you um, hammer out just the right balance where you're allowing participation, but you're also having the people, you know, when we're out of pandemic times, you're having the people who you've elected to represent and, there goes Zoom. and not phone there it in from Zoom. their house in Florida for three months, right? We because lost you for a second. That feels again, like Teresa. it's not. Yeah. Well, there, and there you go. Another aspect of this is probably going to be uh, making sure the technology is up to speed with the uh, with the requirements of the law. Right. I feel like it's driving that point home. Yes, definitely, Bill. It's it's also about public participation, right? Well, absolutely, it's about public participation, and as as you said, I mean, we've seen meetings 
you know, uh, school board meetings um, and, you know, town town board meetings, village board meetings where, you know, as, as a reporter, you would go to these meetings, you know, pre-pandemic and there'd be, you know, the reporter in the audience and one or two other people. And, and you know, um, at, during the pandemic, I think you saw um, you saw tens, twenties, uh, 30, 30 people at a meeting, um, maybe not maybe not speaking at the meeting, but at least paying attention to what's going on, you know, um, in their local governments, school boards, whatever, keeping track of where their tax money is going and and all the things that, that you want to you want to see people participate in. I, I think, you know, Carissa made a made a made a good point, though, that, that that there is that balance there that and I think Fred has talked about this, too, is you want to be sure that people have the opportunity to, you know, to to face to face, eye to eye, um, talk to their elected officials or address their elected officials. And, you know, and, and the elected officials um, are, are responsible. It's, it's one thing when 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 that body is is controlling the Zoom meeting and they're controlling who's talking and and when. But but you want to you want to be sure that people have that opportunity to um um, to, to, to face off against their elected officials if they need to. So, I mean, that's an advantage of, of a live meeting, I guess. It's also about access to being able for journalists to be able to ask uh, follow-up questions. And, right. Um, if you're at a Zoom meeting, that's difficult to, you know, one of the great things that we've, we're always able to do is to catch officials after a meeting and follow up with questions. And it gets a lot harder uh, when those meetings are held virtually. So there is a, it's a double-edged sword. I think there's two sides to it. But I think it's interesting that Albany's trying to find a balance here that allows and, and we've editorialized that we think that continuing with video conferencing in addition to having in-person meetings, that there should be a video aspect uh, to allow people to, to view these meetings. I think that's a crucial part of this. I mean, technology changes all the time, and I think we have to sort of change with it. Um, I, I give credit to, to Fred Thiel and to Albany to for even having this conversation. I think it's pretty clear that the pandemic changed a lot of things, and we need to sort of adjust are thinking uh, in response to that. So it's an interesting topic. I, I think the, the hybrid hybrid model is 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 probably the the way to go and and probably where they'll they'll land. And I think that that works fine. The the um, the lawmakers should be there when when they can or or at least a, a quorum. Um, you know, and then you can allow some people to participate in the meeting live and and some people virtually. I think that works and, out for everybody. So much of it is about how you feel public comment to via, via the, uh, the, the video conferencing. That's still something I think that needs to be worked out because it's, it's not optimal. And as we've seen here, you know, the technology does need to improve a little bit. And honestly, the towns and villages are not really set for this. They, they need to be better prepared. Uh, they need to be investing in equipment. And this is- well, There this needs is, to be better cell service in East Hampton, I think. And, <laughs> where, and there's that too. Where, That's where you see that if somebody's- At least near Crisis House. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we need get to her, get it at Crisis. Get her a booster. <laughs> <laughs> this is behind the Internet there <laughs> you go. You're, it just <laughs> emphasized the point, Carissa, because you just broke up again. Um, it's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton from the Express News Group, and our panelists today are Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group and Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star. Carissa, let's talk a little bit about um, the Montauk Gateway. I have to tell you, I never really noticed this 
until I've seen the photos and, and when this project was announced. And um, explain what exactly the town's going to do here. So the town, it's an intergovernmental partnership and also a public-private partnership with the town and uh, the state and private uh, um, contributors are going to have the power lines, utility lines, and the utility poles taken away. So they're going to bury the lines at the west end of the entry to Montauk. And I'm sure anybody who's driven to Montauk knows that moment as you're approaching from the west and suddenly you see the ocean and, you know, it's glittering on a sunny day or it's rough on a windy, stormy day. But it's just this moment where you say, oh, I've arrived in Montauk. And years ago, I when I was covering the East Hampton Town Board, and I can't even tell you how many years ago it was, but but John Keeshan, a civic activist in Montauk, started to talk about burying the lines. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it doesn't Montauk, doesn't this view deserve the lines being buried? And uh, at the time, the cost just seemed impossible. And there, although people agreed with him that it would look great, they, there just wasn't a path forward to do it money-wise. And so now they've, because some private uh, property owners have organized to get the lines buried along a section of old Montauk Highway, they're sort of able to roll this part of, of the utility lines into that project. Therefore, it's not quite as much money. Um, they've, got, they've got state money coming in. The town's contributed, I think, pledged about a third of what I if I'm remembering correctly, is about a $750,000 cost. So there's money from the state, there's private money, and there's money coming in from the town. But when you see those two pictures, the, the versions that they sent out, and one of them is what it looks like with the lines behind, and it's still beautiful, but one of them is a, a Photoshopped version of no lines, you say, wow, that is, it's pretty special. I mean, it's really a world-class view that you would expect in any of the, you know, most precious places that you would visit on along the ocean and the world. Those I, lines, it's even more so. I have to be honest. I, I, the ocean is so dazzling. I never really noticed the power lines, but I, but yeah, there's no question. And Steve, this is a conversation that's taking place in a lot of communities, right? About burying power lines. I know that West Hampton Beach, when they redid their main street, a big part of that project was burying power lines. This is, uh, this is a movement. Um, uh, and, and a lot of folks want to do it for, for reasons other than aesthetics, right? Yeah, there's no question. I mean, just in the last few months here, there's been on every street here, uh, there's been delays because there are crews replacing power poles mm -hmm. to harden them more so that the next storm comes in, we don't have power outages. And I was thinking driving by one of the out waiting in traffic the other day to go by one of the closed roads where they were putting up new poles. Mm -hmm. You know, the telegraph pole was invented probably in the 1840s or something. And here we are in 2021 in an area that gets big ocean storms coming in, power outages that last for days. We're still using telephone poles. Um, it just it it may it may make sense in some places, but I think on eastern Long Island, just like in Montauk, it just from a structural point of view and from a coming storm point of view, it just seems hopeless. We're spending tens of millions of dollars replacing poles, putting up better poles trying to harden the electrical system so that when storms come, we don't, we don't lose power. 
but it, it does seem to me the answer is to just go underground. But maybe I'm looking at it all wrong. Well, I know the, the Long Island Power Authority is pretty clear on this, that, that they say it's, it's a very expensive proposition and that it raises the costs of maintenance as well. Um, I've never completely understood that because it seems to me that um, I, I guess the storms sweep through and we lose power lines in some areas and they immediately get replaced. But it feels like it, just being able to not worry about that when we have major storms coming and, and you don't have to worry so much about um, power lines coming down and, and power being off for extended periods of time. And the cost I mean, of businesses, Joe. I mean, the cost of businesses that get shut down and the, the loss of business. Um, I mean, you would think you could you could pick, let's say, 10 places on the South Fork and 10 places on the North Fork, like the the uh, the gateway into Orient, where they're, they're just terribly, terribly exposed in a storm and at least bury in those places. Right. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think that I think that's the answer. And maybe we're seeing the start of that in, in Montauk is just to 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 do it piecemeal and incrementally. If if, uh, if if LIPA wants to talk about how expensive it is, look, seven hundred and fifty thousand doesn't seem like a whole lot, um, you know, for this one important spot in in Montauk. But but if you you know if you carry that out through the entire South Fork, North Fork, East End, it's certainly that money's going to add up. But if you start to do it piecemeal, spot by spot, as as you know, maybe the next storm comes and instead of replacing those. Um, you know, those power lines, those overhead power lines, maybe you, you start to work on on burying those, you know, as, as, as Steve said, um, you know, 750 grand is still a lot of money. It's, it's, it's great that they're doing it and it's great that they found the money to do that. Um, but but how do you, you know, looking at the whole thing as, as one package, sure, it's too much money, but but break it up a little bit. Start with um, start with these really, you know, the visual important, visually important places. Um, you know, and as Steve said, you know, the most impacted storm places and do it that way. I think there's also, you know, there's also been talk and I don't know how true it is and I don't know how accurate it is. But, you know, when you've got a high water table like you do in, in some spots on the east end, then that becomes problematic, too, to get the lines underground if if, yeah. the, if the water table is, is, is so high. So, I mean, it's got to be looked at. But yeah, it, it's not going to work everywhere, but <clears throat> there's probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poles on Fire Island from one end to the other. Hmm. And it just seems like it makes no sense there. But maybe the, maybe it's to your point, Bill, maybe they can't get deep enough under it to get out of the water. So um, there has to be a better solution than this. It's really fascinating that Montauk is dealing with this. Yeah, it's oh, it, it, took, it took it took 25 years, um, you know, of, um, you know, efforts um, um, you know, by Mr. Keishan pushing for this for for a quarter of a century and a century, and it's finally getting realized. So um, this wasn't a, a quick thing and good for him for, you know, for keeping up the battle and keeping up the fight and, and finally getting it done. Persistence pays off. Carissa, so it's it's sort of an aesthetic project uh, there, but it might be something that can at least start uh, start up momentum. If I think the more we see lines getting buried, the more likely it is we'll see we'll see that expand. Is that fair? I think she's frozen again. There, no, there's there, there we go. Sorry about my terrible connection. That's, That's right. okay. But uh, I think Montauk may set the pace for for other communities if if the project goes well. And uh, you know we have to talk about this in the context of the possibility of some infrastructure money being available at the federal yeah. level, and maybe that's maybe that's 
the key to getting this done in more places. But that Montauk project is going to be a, a real high profile project, right? It will be. And I focused on the aesthetics because it's what I initially noticed. But um, but the truth is, it is also about resiliency. And um, they, there is a school of thought. And I think there's a reason for it that when you bury the lines, you have greater protection in storms with high winds, as opposed to making the, you know, putting up the taller, thicker parts of East Hampton town and village. Yeah, that's especially um, timely. And you can think to the project, it's especially timely this yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, they were just doing polls on Sound Avenue. They probably spent two or three million dollars going from Baiting Hollow to Mattatuck replacing mm -hmm. poles. I don't I don't see how that makes sense. And this was a bad out. week. This was a bad week for wind. Um, yeah. And I think we had some scattered outages. So it's a yeah. it's an ongoing conversation. Steve, I also I wanted to talk. Um, you had a story this week about a big um, hotel proposal. Uh, that's coming in up your way. Can you tell us a little bit more about yeah, there's that? Two, there's two. Um, there's one that's in the pipeline and one that seems to be about to go into the pipeline that I think for um, for us, Joe, this is kind of new territory. Um, the Enclaves in Southhold is a hotel proposal in, in Southhold Hamlet that's pretty good size. Um, and it's drawn dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people to ZBA meetings uh, opposing it. Um, I'm sure there are people who've spoken in favor of it, but they're, they're totally outnumbered. Um, it's seen Joe and Bill and Carissa as just something that doesn't fit here any, at, at any point in our history, where they want to be as a community. It's too big. It's too noisy. A 200 person space for things of, of big events this in a residential area. And then the second one that, that, that kind of came forward when we were writing about the Enclaves Hotel proposal was the Solovie family, which owns, I think, something like a thousand acres on the North Fork, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, one of them is proposing, uh, or, or seems about to propose a kind of boutique spa at the Peconic Bay Vineyard in Kutchog, right in the center of the hamlet that all of a sudden the letters are pouring in about that. And it seems all kind of tied to the theme of new money. And um, I was talking to Larry Kentwell, the former East Hampton supervisor last week about this. And he was just talking about how when this kind of big money comes, things change in a hurry. And I think that's where the North Fork is right now. What's interesting to me, and, and Carissa, we can talk about this in the context of Southampton and East Hampton towns. I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the, the South Fork in particular, but I think it's, it's sort of true of the East End in general, um, has been, has discouraged um, hotel development over the years. And, and the, I know Southampton town for many years it was part of their planning document that Southampton was meant to be for second homeowners and that the, there was an active effort to discourage day trippers and there were only going to be limited hotel rooms and things like that. That, of course, was in the days before uh, Airbnb and, and v, VRBO and all that stuff. But um, and, and before Jay Schneiderman became supervisor, who is a, um, a motel owner himself in Montauk, but seems um, <clears throat> 
more more eager to allow some hotel development, small boutique hotels in South yeah. Hampton. I know he had he had pushed for one at the Hampton Bay's Diner property. Um, and there certainly Connors. have been there have been some smaller hotels around the region. But this is, um, Carissa, this is kind of a change in strategy. Uh, as I wonder if we're going to see more and more attempts to push into the area with hotel developments. Well, we have seen in Montauk, you've seen over the course of the past 15 or so years, a big change in the kind of hotels that are there. You saw that what we would probably think of as the mom and pop type motel hotels being turned over, taken over by people who are bringing new money and new ideas about what a hotel should be and what what Montauk was ready for, what Montauk's tourists were ready for. Um, I think that it's true. We're going to, as, as there's a, another big changeover in properties, we will see more of this type of request. And it, it won't just be in Southhold Town that you see a potential. I can't really see something that large happening in East Hampton. Mm-hmm. Old, but, but I think you definitely get a, Big change in what hotels are expected to be, and what pe- what travelers and visitors expect from their from their accommodations when they come and to here. What it's done, Joe, is it's that age old battle or generation old tug of war between people who came out because of what the place is, mm-hmm. and then people who come out and see potential in what the place is, and that that friction is only going to get heightened in the next few months. I mean, the ZBA has this huge decision to make. Uh, on the Enclaves Hotel in Southhold. Um, the feeling seems to be that if that goes through at some large level, even if they cut back on some of the, the requests, that others will immediately follow. I mean, this is a place where a large wedding at a vineyard, people are staying in Riverhead because there's no place to stay. So it feels, this sounds like an exaggeration, but it does feel somewhat existential here in terms of we're at, we seem to be at a moment where Oddly enough, the pandemic, which I guess when it all began, we thought was going to have a really negative effect on money and business and growth, has brought out massive sums of money um, out here. Um, mm. or the $400,000 house for years in Mattituck is now $1.1 million. People lined up like crazy making bids on it. And it's the same thing on land and open space. Um, there are condos going up in Greenport, right, where there were fishing boats. Um, the, the column we can talk about later that we have in our paper this week goes to this whole thing kind of through the lens of the death of a Bayman in East Hampton. And it, the North Fork is at a point where it really needs some way to decide what, what we will allow and what we won't allow. And then if zoning, existing zoning allows it, then there's going to be all kinds of legal fights. When you, Riverhead, you, okay. you, talk, you talked about the, the pandemic, and, and I think, you know, in addition to the people fleeing to, to move out here, I think that, um, you know, the, the wineries and other attractions on, on the North Fork became kind of a, a safe outdoor place for people to recreate, um, you know, instead of instead of indoor venues or whatever. So I think you saw a lot of of day trippers, a lot more day trippers coming out. We saw the same thing on the South Shore too, but but particularly on the, I mean, I've seen, I live in Riverhead. I've seen, see the traffic on, on Sound Avenue and and, and Main Road and, and all that. And, you know, even in, in the height of, of the pandemic and people were coming out and spending time at the wineries and all that. Yeah. And, and I wonder if, if that's, you know, part of the, 
certainly part of the the motivation for for these hotels is is to is to keep them for a couple extra days. Yeah, and aside to that, Bill, I mean the Harbs Vineyard right at the edge of Riverhead yeah. and, and Mattatuck. Um, the neighbors are going batty over because right. they claim that it's not really quote unquote, a farming operation, right? That it's agri entertainment, whatever the heck that is, that they sell wine that they're not producing on site and they want the state to, to act. They want the, somebody to do something. And both Riverhead and South Old police now have to keep people there to keep the traffic moving. It's a terrible bottleneck. Yeah, South Hamlet yeah. was a country road for debt for generations. Yeah, the, police, the way everybody gets here. The police are not keeping the traffic moving by, <laughs> by them. Yeah, by any stretch. Uh, and and if, if you look at Harbs and you say, well, if you want a farming operation to be profitable, you got to stretch the meaning of farming operation. Yeah. Uh, they're, they really stretched it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what half the things they have has anything to do with farming. No, yeah. it's, a de it's a destination, certainly. And you, but do you want them to make money and keep the land open? Or how do you want to handle this? It's it, it's a two-edged sword here. Sure. Sorry, Steve, uh, is it fair? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carissa. Just saying, as the generations go on, they probably need to look more and more for ways to diversify that agricultural oper operation to support so, you know, subsequent generations of a family. It's it, in a way what you're talking about, an existential crisis for for um, the North Fork, it's also, you know, we're also looking at an existential crisis for agriculture in some ways too. I mean, what is, what, how do you make it profitable? And can you, if, if it takes all of that, the entertainment aspect to, to make it work, is that gonna be okay with people or does that need it's to- It's not okay at Harbs. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Because people who live around the perimeter of Harbs where we're trying to get past Harbs so they get to their home. Impossible. Um, it's they're saying, what is what you got 500 cars here. Yeah. yeah. They're playing cornhole, they're having hot dogs, they're they're doing all kinds of things. Yeah, and coming from everywhere. And they're coming from everywhere. And then the whole pumpkin craze. I mean, I've said as a joke before, I guess they don't sell pumpkins in Nassau County, they must have <laughs> because they're driving to Peconic. Mm -hmm. And now there's this bottleneck at Harbs where where farm stands east of Harbs. Mm. are calling this the Harbs effect where they're not getting business because nobody can get past Harbs. Yeah. So, and, and of course the whole pumpkin thing's crazy anyway. Uh, they just put pumpkins in a field and make it look like they're growing there or something. But, yeah. Um, it's a point, it, it's a point we made previously on the show though, too, that the state is, you know, agritainment, I believe is, is how Joe Workmeister um, described this uh, the way some of the, the farm operations and the wineries and the, the distilleries, uh, this is something the state's supporting. They want that one of the, they, it seems to me that Albany thinks that the way forward for the agricultural community in the state is to add these additional uses that you're seeing there with all of their accompanying problems though, uh, when they're popular. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it is, a, it, you know, what is farming and how do you help a family keep going? Uh, the Wickham operation right in Kutchog, I live just slightly on the east side of the Wickham farm. They don't do those agri-entertainment things. They do apple picking and, and things like that, but they're packed in there and yeah. people want that. Uh, it's mm -hmm. really a farm. Um, Harbs appears to some people to be not really a farm. It's just some kind of a Disneyland uh, model of a farm. And But yet again, don't they have the right to try to find things to keep their business going? Well, not if you we have... hear them. October on the South Fork is Hank's Pumpkin Town month. Yeah. 
And, and we learned to avoid that whole stretch of road uh, for most of October leading up to it. So it's it, it's certainly throughout the whole region. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our guests today are Steve Wick, uh, the executive editor of the Times Review Media Group, and Carissa Katz, the managing editor at the Stampton Star. Steve, you sort of mentioned it briefly. You have a column this week that sort of touches on some of the, the, the related subject here, which is the changing nature of, of the East End and how some of the old ways are are starting to 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 disappear right. along with the people who sort of manifested those old ways um tell us about that column yeah um we bill uh dan king was of that boniker springs uh, crowd um for generations obviously uh he died in north carolina a year or so ago a year and a half or so ago he moved to north carolina he's quoted in men's lives peter matheson's really classic book on the boniker culture as saying he just couldn't make it work here anymore. And then prices went kind of crazy on him. So they moved away and there was a memorial for him last no, uh, last August uh, in a cemetery in East Hampton. And the column kind of springs off this idea that a Bayman from a 300 year old tradition couldn't make it work there. Um, I went out with, when I was with Newsday, I went out with the Hall Sanding crew in the, in the early nineties, Jens Lester's crew also from Springs. Um, to see this culture that had always been there, Joe, always been a part of Boniker culture. It, it made East Hampton in so many ways so special that they had this the vestiges of something that old doing something so biblical. I mean, I, I would I watched for two days that whole standing crew and it was, it was sort of like the Sea of Galilee casting nets. And yet the new world, the new money intruded even on that, where a guy came up in his Range Rover and complained bitterly that he didn't want the smell of fish in front of his house. And he, other than there was a DEC guy there kind of monitoring it, telling him to get lost, it, it could have escalated into something else. Um, so the column looks at what the death of a Bayman uh, in East Hampton means to the North Fork, where you're at, we're at this point where something has to intercede to say, what do we want to hold on to? Is there such a thing as a traditional way of life? There's nothing traditional about Harbs. There's something traditional about a lot of the other farm stands here. Al Krupski's operation at Peconic, um, Tom Wickham's operation in Kutchuk. Can it survive this big money? The end of the column is a series of quotes from Larry Cantwell, the former East Hampton Town Supervisor, who kind of looks at the North Fork through the lens of his own experience. And he basically says, once the big money comes, they want what they want. Mm. And it's pretty hard to stop. And he points out that East Hampton saved about 45% of its open space, but people can't afford to live there. Right. What does it mean to a fire department? What does it mean to the working class? But when someone, as the column points out, when someone from a, a three century old tradition leaves, what does that mean for here over on this side of the bay? And what does it mean for the for the really glorious past that we've all loved to be a part of on Eastern Long Island? Carissa, you've been watching that up close for the last 20 years or so. Um, it is an industry that's just disappearing before our eyes, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. One of the things I love 
that's still very much a thing is watching the people with the pound traps that extend off of the beaches and um, probably one of the most sustainable forms of fishing that there is. And that's still going on. I feel like the day that that no longer happens is sort of the saddest day and the very end of, of that way of life for good. And I think even if you're not participating in it, if you're not a Bayman or you're, you still, uh, it's the longer you live here, the more that becomes a sort of a part of the fabric of who you are. And, um, it's a really good point for us. I mean, it sort of feels like Greenport is on its way to becoming kind of a museum piece as Mm -hmm. opposed to a, a place where fishing boats pull up. Yeah. There are fishing boats. You can see them parked by the ferry over to Shelter Island. But there's literally one fishing operation that's offshore now with, with offshore permits, and that's Mark Phillips's operation. Um, there's a nice big condo going in along Sterling Creek where people used to build boats. Um, the old ice house that used to pack all the all the fishing boats down on, on the waterfront. You know, you've got trendy stores going in in old buildings where fishing operations. I'm not saying nostalgia is a government policy because it can't be. It doesn't work. Yeah. Policy kind of follows money, but it's it will be a horror show when so much is lost that made some place like your town, Carissa, so unique. I mean, I did a whole bunch of stories when Peter's book came out on men's lives. I did a long magazine piece on him when he was trying to get a, a Lakota Indian out of prison uh, who was wrongly convicted of a, of a murder of an FBI agent. Um, he he was crazy passionate about that culture and he just did not understand how the big money came out and just crushed everything. Now, no, no one's saying they came out and purposely decided to push everybody out of their way. But as Larry says in this column, that's what big money does. That's it's, it. That's the end result of what it does. Every, all that other stuff goes away. Well, it's sort of unstoppable. You, if you have the, if you have the money and the lawyers, then you can, do so much of what you want. And I think we're seeing, talking about the pandemic and how things have changed, the, the incredible boom in real estate prices that, you know, the prices that are just beyond anything we could have imagined even three years ago, that has also made a lot of people who, who also form the fabric of the community think about maybe now is really time to cash out because I can't, I work so hard for, less money than than people would make in other areas you can the house you can live in is less than you could have if you move to a different area so people are reevaluating whether the future they want is the future they see coming to yeah. the east end the guy on the north fork from riverhead a polish man who used to pick up garbage here uh, for private homes and he a few years ago he showed me an ad in the new york times magazine of a barn in sagaponic that was on sale for like eight million dollars he said, Steve, my wife grew up on this farm. Her Polish family in the 20s, 30s, and 40s grew up there. There was a potato barn now for sale for some insane amount. And that was 15 years ago. I think right. what it is now. The, the money becomes completely unreal. And money follows money. They get what they want. They'll go to a ZBA meeting with a horde of lawyers. No one can, can go up against it. Larry's point was it, when, when that big money comes... It changes everything. Yeah, and we've seen. I mean, and, and Carissa, 
Carissa, you saw just a, almost a, as Steve talked about it, almost an erasure of the, the bonnet culture uh, in East Hampton. I mean, that, that just, I think uh, so many folks cashed out and, and left the area and the, the, you know, the, the traditional ways that the bonnet folks, you know, made money pretty much dried up and, and yeah. went away. And you think of Springs, Joe, as a place where the dories were on trailers behind somebody's house and the fishing nets were stretched over clotheslines to dry out. And there was a painter trying to get started, you know, painting on the floor of an old barn. The, the things that made East Hampton, to me, one of the most special places I've ever been to in my life. I mean, East Hampton is a mind-blowing place. And that traditional place is absolutely gone. And thank God Peter wrote that book. Uh, he captured it in that book. And it was paid for by uh, Adelaide D. Manil. She hired, what, 10, 12, 15 photographers to document it. Look at the photographs in that book. That's the culture that is completely, absolutely gone now. And the day Dan King, I think it was 2004, he and his wife loaded up a car in Springs to drive to North Carolina to start over. It was, that was the canary in the coal mine. That was the day someone should have looked at and said, if you can't live here after 300 years, you can't live anywhere. And who wrote the column, Steve? I did. That was your column. Okay. Yeah. And it can be found at the Times Review Media Group yeah. uh, website. Shortly, but it, you can see the E, the, the e edition copy of it. Um, yeah. It just, it just strikes me as just sad. Yeah, that, it's a and key again, point I don't too. know how you can. I don't know how government controls money. I don't know how government can get nostalgic and and keep a, a bayman in his home. But it is the the impact of this is that it's not there anymore. It's gone. Dan King's dory, the one with the American flag on the front, which is prominent in Peter's book, that's at the East Hampton Town Museum. It just sits in front of the building. It's an artifact. Which speaks volumes all by itself, right? Yeah, an old fishing boat, uh, Mark Phillips's old fishing boat, sits behind a dock, sits at a dock behind a, a fish market in, on Sterling Harbor. It's not going out again. These are artifacts of what once was. Mm -hmm. It's like Indian culture. It's gone. Nobody cared. It's gone. But when someone comes out and puts a million dollars down on a $400,000 house or $30 million around on an oceanfront property in Sagaponic, I don't know what else can survive that kind of an environment. That leads nicely into um, another conversation, which is about an event uh, that we at the Express News Group had this week. We had a virtual Express Sessions event uh, on Thursday, and the video of it should be going up on 27East.com this week. Um, we talked about beach access, and this has been a constant conversation uh, on the South Fork, but it also can, I think it's also been an issue up in South Hold and some other areas. Um, there's really a battle going on and it's taking place in the courts. And, and recently the courts have been much more, you know, the battle is between private property rights and what rights the owners of waterfront properties have to control the beach in front of their houses versus beach access for the public to be able to access those beaches in this area. And in the last few rounds, um, Carissa, in the last few rounds, and especially at Truck Beach, the beach access has been losing and the property owners are winning and, and they won a big 
fight at Truck Beach, right? That's in Amagansett. Um, and, and that was a big loss to the beach access folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, the courts agreed with the private property owners that they owned the beach to the high mean high watermark. And that is something that the East Hampton town was fighting. Now they're still talking about condemnation of that section of beach to allow continued public access to it. And that is one of those things that undercuts the, when you undercut access in one way, where, what are the unintended consequences access for fishermen? I mean, the beach there, it, it obviously wasn't people who were just going to fish. It was people who might have taken a fishing pole along, but people who were spending a Sunday afternoon there driving onto the beach as people have in one form or another for, for even before there were motorized vehicles. But it had become something that the property owners along that stretch of beach were outraged about. And so you can, to some extent, understand where they're coming from. On the other hand, here's this issue of access. We're very lucky um, in East Hampton Town, Southampton Town, I'm not as certain about the North Fork um, towns, and but we're very lucky to have public access to our beaches, that our beaches for almost exclusively are not private beaches, the way if you drove along the ocean beach in Florida, you would find so many places where there was absolutely no public access to the sand. And we're lucky to own that. And so the battle is do we, what, you know, when you give up a little, how much do you give up? Where else does, right. where else does that happen? How does, how does it start to fall away? But the scene, Carissa, that really sticks in my mind when I was doing that, when I was out with Jens Lester, that his crew, you can see the photograph that we took, that I, I pulled out of the Newsday archive that runs with the column. In 1992, he had they'd launched their dories. Um, the whole setting operation, you launch a dory and it, it arcs a big net around and comes into another dory and then it gets winched onto the beach. And he's, as Jens' crew was pulling this totally loaded uh, with striped bass net onto the beach, the guy in the Range Rover shows up. And there was it, it was sort of like a metaphor for everything you see going on. Absolutely. I'm, I'm here. I have a house here. I don't like this. Yeah. I spent $8 million on my water for this in 1992. I spent $8 million on my house. What, what are you people doing here? This can't be right. And well, we've been here for 300 years. You got here last summer with all your money. It, 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 I remember thinking that he, the guy was insulting people with his arrogance in, in his Range Rover on a public beach where people had done this for generations, Carissa. And he, this guy's getting in his face. Funny, the DEC guy told him to calm down and leave. But I thought no, nothing can survive when that kind of avalanche of money and power confronts the powerless. And no one was more powerless than the Boniker culture. Why did Mario Cuomo ban uh, wholesaling for stripers? Because the sports lobby, the sports fishing lobby, was incredibly politically powerful. And they said, we don't like this either. It's going to endanger the striped bass population. Mm -hmm. So they just simply shut them out and they disappeared. And they got into a car and they drove to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And the day that Dan King and his wife drove to North Carolina is a day East Hampton should never forget. They should stick a monument up somewhere saying, on that day, we changed for the worse. I think that's something of how 
his boat being in front of the East Hampton Town Marine Museum is a little bit of a monument to that when they did the early, so the people, the Baymen and their supporters have been doing civil disobedience actions, driving onto the beach despite the court's prohibition. And um, the first time that they did it in the summer, they actually took Dan King's boat with them. And uh, the symbolism of that, I'm sure, yeah. Steve, you especially. Really um, and, uh, we all remember his key dates. Remember the day that he and his wife left, because it's a, it's a watershed moment in what you were going to be able to do after 2004 when he left. And, and Carissa, the, the conversation we had was whether the recent court rulings in the trial, and, and let's be clear, the, the Truck Beach case has a lot of things about it that make it very specific to Truck Beach. It's, it's mm -hmm. it, you know, there, there are differences between the way beach access is maintained in Southampton versus East Hampton. And in this particular case, it, it has some very specific things about it that make it really applicable only to that beach. But that being said, there's no denying that the courts, the state courts, which have the ultimate right to rule on this idea of does the public have access to beaches in front of private property, the courts have begun to swing towards the private property rights. For years, the, the cases were all pretty much in favor of beach access. That's changing now at the court level, and uh, that has the potential to gain momentum and we could start to see it eroding away at access to beaches in general. Yeah, the issue that's so specific with, with the beach at Nepeeg, that section of beaches that is chain of title, how, how it, um, when Arthur Benson sold, or I'm sort of, I'm not remembering the specific details, so I won't, so I won't, Say the he, bought, he actually bought from the town trustees. The difference, I think, between and some and, rights, right? Yes, it's called a it's called a reservation. It's sort of an easement, but mm -hmm. it only offers very specific protection to very specific fishing practices. And and just how widely it can be interpreted is up for debate. But the courts have sort of decided now that it can only be interpreted as narrowly as the courts meant at the time that ruling came down in the 1800s. So it doesn't take into consideration, you know, vehicular access to the beach or anything of that sort. So it's a pretty, pretty strong ruling in uh, against the ability to drive on the beach, at least. Yeah. Joe, to your, your earlier point, I think that, you know, and I think it was one of the speakers at the sessions mentioned this too, and you're talking about just overall access. Maybe it was it was Fred Thiel talking about growing up in, in Sag Harbor, that that there were different spots where where growing up that they would be able to to go and access the beach and, and party on the beach and have fun on the beach. And and he was talking about road ends. And, and I think that <clears throat> You, you see, I mean, there's 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 perhaps an erosion on the core level, but there's also an erosion on on the local level, too, where you have all these road ends where people used to be able to park on the road and walk onto the beach. And now <clears throat> all of a sudden they're all filling up with no parking signs that you can't access the beach that way. And you have to wonder, <clears throat> excuse me, how that happened and, and how that those those areas where you used to be able to just park and access the beach, how those roads became private and people can no longer, um, you know, just walk onto the beach from there. And, and I think that that's 
um, you know, a, a, a startling and, and a worrisome um, erosion as well. And I think we saw some of that during the, the pandemic with the fishing, too, where you had a lot of these these um, access points where people were coming in from the city during the pandemic to go fishing. And and the towns passed a lot of local laws to make um, to make those make parking to limit parking uh, in those areas and to make them by by permit only. And so if you're a local, it's, it's easy enough to get a permit, but um, but it limits the number of, of people that can be there. And I think that's a little scary, too. And Eric Schultz, who's the president of the Southampton Town Trustees, uh, made no bones about it. He says it's it's a class struggle that it has to do with the wealthy and the beaches and, and keeping local folks off of those beaches and uh, it's sort of the the undercurrent of that. So, you know, this conversation, I feel like we could go another hour, but unfortunately yeah, our really hour- is, These are really key to everything yeah. out here though. They really yeah, are. Yeah, it really is. This is, this is, and it's happening in real time too, which is, which is remarkable. These are remarkable times. Uh, but we are sadly out of time for for this. We can pick it up again uh, in the future. It's not like uh, this won't be a topic of conversation moving forward. I think we can continue having it. Uh, it's been a great conversation today with Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group. Steve, thanks. Appreciate you being Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Really love being here. Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star. Always a pleasure, Carissa. Great to be here. Thank you. And to my co-host, Bill Sutton, uh, thank you for being up in the morning, Bill to uh, manage all this for us. Absolutely. And thank you, thank Joe, you for uh, tying it all together. I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for joining us for Behind the Headlines. We'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Good show, guys. Thanks. Thanks.